1: In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, we start a two-part series featuring Michael Knowles, a conservative political commentator and host of the Michael Knowles Show at the Daily Wire. Michael and I will discuss his new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, by Michael Knowles. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's rebellion. As I said in the introduction, I'm going to start a two-part series, maybe stretch it out to a three-part series, featuring a guest, Michael Knowles. Now, many of you, if not all of you, already know who Michael is. He's a conservative political commentator. As I said in the introduction, he is the host of his own show, the Michael Knowles Show, on the Daily Wire. He's part of the Daily Wire team, which, as you know, features Ben Shapiro, Andrew Clavin, Matt Walsh, and a list of others. Now, Michael has a new book out. It's titled Speechless, Controlling Words and Controlling Minds. It was released about a month ago. He's also the best-selling author of a book that he published in 2017 through Amazon. It was a best-selling book with them, and it was titled The Reasons to Vote for Democrats, A Comprehensive Guide, and it consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying pages that were blank. I'm serious. He actually had the audacity and the guts to do this. 266 blank pages on reasons to vote for Democrats. I think that speaks for itself. And shortly after the book's release, President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of it. And it's kind of ironic that an author of a best-selling book with blank pages has now chosen to publish a new book about the use of language and the abuse of language in our current political discussion so without further ado let's take an early break and acknowledge our sponsors so that we don't have to interrupt the interview with michael knowles thereafter i'm dr everett piper and this is the rebellion and i will be right back in a couple minutes okay welcome back to the rebellion as i said i have a special guest today Michael Knowles, who is the host of the Michael Knowles show on the Daily Wire and also the author of Speechless: Controlling Words and Controlling Minds. And I'm delighted to be able to have him on today's show and he's agreed to stick with us and do a and do tomorrow's show likewise. Michael, welcome to the Rebellion.
0: Dr. Piper, thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm very excited about this. Uh, I'm sure that all of the listeners of the Rebellion here in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, know who you are and are excited about having you. All right, you've uh, <laughs> we can't we can't interview you without uh, discussing your first book. You actually <laughs> had the audacity <laughs> to print 266 pages of reasons to vote for a Democrat. You want to describe that book for
0: us very briefly? Oh well, yes. If you've seen a stack of uh, printer paper, then I think you've seen the content of my book. Uh, this bo- I will say the book has a very extensive bibliography. It took me a long time to research it, and it took me about 10 seconds to write it. Uh, it is 260 some odd blank pages. And I'll tell you, I put it up there mostly as a way to irritate my Democrat friends and relatives. I thought I'd sell a few dozen copies. And, uh, but the American people, I think, understood the truth of my thesis. And so it ended up becoming a number one bestseller on Amazon and <laughs> continues to sell copies today, actually. Does it really? Oh,
1: sometime in private, you'll have to tell me how many copies of this thing you actually sold. It's brilliant. I think Shapiro
0: said something like, I've read it from cover to cover. Is that true? (laughs) Yes, there there were a few. Uh, Dennis Prager said that he read it twice. Uh, Ben called it thorough. There were, uh, I think, uh, a a number of others uh, said that they really got inside the minds of Democrats. I'm I'm really honored that uh, it received such an important scholarly response. (laughs) Well, congratulations. Well, it it appears that Speechless is a little bit more verbose, shall we say? (laughs) We've gone from wordless to Speechless, and the latter does have words, I can assure the listeners. (laughs) So, in Speechless,
1: you're covering the issue of political correctness, and what has gone wrong in our culture with regard to debate, cancel culture, this cry for safe spaces, trigger warnings and whatnot. Describe the book for us and
0: why you feel it's important for people to pay attention to it. Well, As you say, the book traces political correctness, which most people uh, trace back about 30 years. I think it goes back about 100 years, and I outline that history and how it evolved to where we are. Uh, political correctness uh, goes by a number of different terms. We now call it wokeness or cancel culture. Of course, the, the defining characteristic of political correctness is that it changes all the words, so we shouldn't be surprised that the, the words themselves to refer to that phenomenon change. And I, I set out to write this issue, or write this book rather, because it seems to me this is the defining issue of our age, speech, and specifically, who controls the speech in our republic. Now, I had no way of knowing at the time that a, a few months before my book would be published, the big tech oligarchs in Silicon Valley would censor the duly elected sitting president of the United States. I had no way of knowing that people would be entirely ostracized from society, even duly elected representatives uh, by unaccountable bureaucrats. But I did have a sense that political correctness was a a big problem because as old Uncle Aristotle says, man is the political animal because he has speech. And in a, a republic such as ours, speech is politics and politics is speech. If you control the speech, you control the whole thing. That's how we govern ourselves. We persuade one another. And so there's the overt censorship of the big tech oligarchs. Then there's the softer censorship of the the wordsmiths who just insist that we refer to Bruce Jenner as she, for instance, who who insists that we refer to all sorts of silly euphemisms. And that's the kind of pre-censorship that I think colors our world. It allows the left to win debates really before they even begin. And I just noticed this problem that Although we have been overtly fighting against political correctness for the past three or four decades, we only ever seem to lose ground. And even stranger, we find that the harder we fight, the more ground we lose. So I set out in, in writing this history of political correctness to, to figure out why it, it seems to be that there's no way to gain or even hold the ground against the PC radicals.
1: So, okay, so that's a perfect segue. Why? Why are conservatives losing in the marketplace of ideas? And and I agree with you. It seems like we're backpedaling. We're playing defense all the time. I also agree with you. I've said it a thousand times on my show and elsewhere, that he who defines the terms wins the debate. Conservatives have lost charge of the narrative. We're no longer defining the terms. So address that and tell us what you think we should
0: do. So the the problem here, I think, is while we on the right, we like to flatter ourselves and say that we understand free speech and censorship much better than the left does. Uh, reading the, the brilliant, wicked, but brilliant leftist theorists who gave us PC, I just don't think that's true. I think the left actually understands free speech and censorship better than we do. And I think that's how they've been able to manipulate both to their political advantage. I believe that political correctness is purely a negative campaign to destroy traditional standards. And I think that was true in the 1920s and 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way up to the present day. And so this has laid a trap for conservatives. The trap is this. There are two main ways that conservatives have reacted to political correctness. On the one hand, you've got the squishes. They go along with whatever words that we're told to use now. They call Bruce Jenner, she, and so forth. So obviously, they advance political correctness. But then on the other hand, you have the more stalwart conservatives. They say I will not go along with the new woke standard. I will not use the words that they tell me to use. Very often they'll ground their arguments in free speech absolutism. And therein lies the problem. Because in refusing to go along with the new leftist standard, these more stalwart conservatives will abandon standards entirely but that also advances political correctness, which sets out simply to destroy the traditional standards. So either way you cut it, you give the left what it wants and uh, no one will defend the traditional standards. And because nature abhors a vacuum, the leftist woke standard will come in and take its place. And I think we've just seen that process repeat itself time and time again in recent decades up to the present day. Okay, you, you talk about free
1: speech absolutists in the book. Tell us what that means and what you're trying to uh, communicate with that particular label and nomenclature.
0: So this is a bit of a provocative term because I strongly suspect that uh, many listeners, myself included, would have probably used this term to describe ourselves uh, over the years because we defend the First Amendment tradition in America, the free speech tradition. But what I I think the free speech absolutist falls into is he refuses to acknowledge that all societies have standards. He refuses to acknowledge that all societies have taboos. That has certainly been true in the United States since the very beginning, it remains true today, and it's it's been true everywhere else. Just as liberty requires limits, I think true free speech requires that we acknowledge that you're actually not permitted to say absolutely anything you want at any given time. Since the beginning of our country, you are not permitted to engage in threats or fraud or obscenity or fighting words. These things have never been protected by the First Amendment. There have always been standards. I'll I'll even use the example of cancel culture. Cancel culture is nothing new, but it has changed dramatically. In the 1950s, you would be canceled for being a communist. You could lose your job in Hollywood. You could lose your job in the federal government. You could even be prosecuted. You could be canceled for being a communist. Today, you will be canceled for not being a communist. <laughs> so the cancel culture has not changed. It's just the, the standard by which one is canceled. And I think the left understood this. And w- so what they undertook to do was to invert the standards, to, put the, to change the standards to make them more politically advantageous to the leftist political agenda. And conservatives have been dithering. We, we've been defending free speech in the abstract with nothing to say in practice. All right, I'm going to
1: share with you something that I've discussed on the show repeatedly. Now, you're the guest. You're free to disagree or agree with me. But I've said over and over again that, as G.K. Chesterton said, you have no liberty without law, and you're not going to have any freedom without fences. If you get rid of all the fences, you're not going to be free. You're going to run out into the road and get killed. And over and over again, we're told, and I believe I'm paraphrasing rather correctly, Chesterton, when he said... Uh, get rid of the big laws of God and you don't have liberty. You get thousands and thousands of little laws to rush in and fill the vacuum. I hear you saying the same thing.
0: Agree or disagree? Entirely agree. Actually, it reminds me of another line from Chesterton that I think is important to this discussion, which is, there is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. That there <laughs> there actually are thoughts, There, there are speech acts that undermine thought and speech, and those cannot be permitted. And of course, liberty requires limits. I think a lot of the the confusion these days, even among the the squishes on the right, uh, comes down to a misunderstanding of what liberty is. Very famously, infamously, I guess, a couple of years ago, there was a conservative columnist who called Drag Queen Story Hour one of the blessings of liberty. <laughs> James Madison rolls in his grave at the very thought. Mm. And, and mm. he embraced a sort of radical skepticism that said, if we tell perverts they can't twerk for kids at the library, then they'll tell us we can't go to church on Sunday, which, by the way, they're already doing. And if you really believe that we can't discern between Drag Queen Story Hour and church on Sunday what you're telling me is we, we don't no longer have any moral judgment and we no longer have any faculties of reason. And this, I think, is the problem. What is liberty? According to the modern liberal view, liberty is the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. So the heroin addict who's got a couple bucks in his pocket, well, he's the freest man in the world because he can go shoot up dope and gosh, isn't he liberated. Now, of course, Dr. Piper, you and I know that man is not free. That man is a slave to his base passions and to his appetites. Uh, Whereas uh, according to Christianity, according to the pre-Christian philosophers, according to our founding fathers, true liberty is not the ability to do whatever you want. True liberty is the freedom to do what you ought to do. True liberty It involves tamping down those base passions, cultivating the higher virtues, getting your appetites in in accord with your rational will, and then living like a free man. This is what John Adams means when he says that the constitution's built for a moral and religious people. You actually can't govern yourself if if you don't possess those capacities. So when you recognize the, the definition of liberty that built our civilization and built our country, then you begin to realize, oh yes, there must be limits. And it's not enough to just throw your hands in the air and say, do whatever you want. Uh, you actually have to say, no, some things are good, some things are bad, some are true and some are false, some are right and some are wrong, and you've got you've to stand for that. And what I hear you arguing for is a biblical
1: worldview. Now, I don't know if you choose to call it that or not, but certainly, yeah. th- you, you, you brought up the word ought, what we ought to do. Well, there is no ought unless there is something bigger than you and bigger than me defining what that ought Is like Lewis said, [S.] C.S. Lewis said, uh, you have to have a measuring rod outside of those things that you're measuring or you can do no measuring. That's what I hear you arguing for. And I'd like you to run with that a little bit for the sake of our listeners and tell them why you embrace that particular ideology.
0: Well, it's manifestly true. I mean, it's even bigger than ideology. The, the existence of God can be known with certainty from the natural world. The evidence is all around us. The world doesn't make sense if he doesn't exist. And self-government certainly doesn't make sense if he doesn't exist. And every American once understood this fact. And then in the 20th century, as I chronicle in Speechless, everything began to change. So for for instance, right now, you can read just about any book in school in this country, in public school. You can teach just about any book in public school. You can teach Ibram Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, all sorts of radical gender, racial craziness. But there's one book you can't teach. The Bible, the, the most important book ever written. For by the way, even if you are an atheist or an agnostic, you have to at least admit that the, without understanding the Bible, you can't understand anything that came after it in Western literature, history, or philosophy. And yet, you're not allowed to teach that. You can engage in all sorts of strange liturgies and religious practices in school. You can have Earth Day celebrations. You can have Pride Month rituals but you can't pray to God. You can't have (laughs) true religion. You can have all sorts of false religions, but you can't have true religion. And unfortunately, a great many conservatives went along with this, these preposterous Supreme Court decisions that booted the Bible and prayer out of schools. What, What many modern conservatives have done over the last 20 years or so is they've accepted the left's premise that secular liberalism is somehow a neutral playing field where we can duke out the the free marketplace of ideas. But that simply is not the case. We are assuming a very radical premise. If we really believe that there is a firm wall of separation between church and state in the United States, which not only is not true here, but it's not true anywhere because at bottom, all human conflict is theological. All regimes must have certain religious precepts. When you pass any law, whether it's on uh, criminal justice or on parking tickets, you are going to have to refer to the objective moral order. You're going to have to make moral and ultimately religious arguments for it. That's just a fact of politics. So you're going to have some religion as, as the political philosopher Bob Dylan says, everybody's got to serve somebody. And during the 20th century, what the left managed to do was skew all of that in their own favor and and so often conservatives go along with it. I'm reminded what the, of what the late Don Rumsfeld said when he said there are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns, which is actually a pretty wise observation. And I, I fear that, that right now, so many conservatives don't even know what they don't know. Or they, in, in an even stranger way, they don't even know what they know. They've accepted the ideology and the premises of their political opponents. And it's, it's why we, we never seem to be able to get in front of it.
1: So this ontological confusion in the conservative mind, and I agree 100%, and I think most of the people listening to this program right now understand that because we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show. This, this duplicity, this hypocrisy, this ontological confusion where we actually have bought the lie that I can't tolerate your intolerance, I hate hateful people, I'm sure that nothing is sure, and I'm absolutely confident there are no absolutes. And conservatives stand there dumbfounded <laughs> not knowing how to confront this nonsense. It's like watching a dog chase its tail. It'd be humorous if it weren't so sad as we watch <laughs> these people sawing off the branch upon which they sit. Right.
0: I assume you're giving us an answer in your book to that dilemma. I'm giving you a bit of a hint at the end. And I, I think it's, it's an important hint, at least. I'm not going to posit a whole new conservative governing philosophy, but I think the, pro, the problems you're identifying are quite clear. I actually just saw a tweet uh, in response to something I had written from the Libertarian Party Twitter account, which I think must be satire at this point. I can't believe that anybody really holds these views. But uh, the Libertarian Party said, we don't force our morality on anyone. And I thought, well, you know, if you make the claim that it's wrong to force your morality on anyone, that is a moral, a moral claim, claim. <laughs> that you're, you're forcing <laughs> on me. So they, they seem to be benighted in this regard. They seem to be pretty unaware of what's going on. Uh, that's a big problem. The the libertarian ascendancy in, in the conservative coalition w- is a big problem, uh, um, among other issues in, in the conservative movement. So sure, that's an issue. So now we've got Uh, basically two camps I see among the conservative intelligentsia (laughs) trying to duke this out. On the one hand, you've got the radical libertarian types who say, do whatever you want, uh, just don't make me pay for it. Uh, You've got the neoconservative types who say, do whatever you want, just let me bomb the Middle East. Okay, that's on one side of the argument. Then on the other side of the argument, you're seeing a growing number of traditionalists and even Catholic integralists. I'm thinking of people like so, Rabbi Amari has just articulated this quite forcefully, uh, that we need to recognize that there, the society needs to be ordered toward the common good and ultimately the highest good. And, uh, you know, some, some people have argued very explicitly for Catholic integralism. Um, my goal is not quite so ambitious, or at least my proposal is not quite so ambitious. I think that there is a conservative virtue that can really guide us here and that virtue would be prudence. <laughs> we, I, I know it's, it's a kind of a dirty word these days because everyone wants a very clear, simple ideology in five bullet points on a napkin. But I think that if we want to restore the free speech tradition in America, we don't need to come up with a whole brand new pie in the sky philosophy. We can just look to what we have done in the past, what has worked. And a, and a very clear example of something concrete to do would be to heavily regulate, if not ban outright, Internet pornography. There is a widespread agreement on this. Actually, the Republican House and the Democrat Senate and the Democrat President passed two laws on this in the Clinton administration, the Communications Decency Act, and the Child Online Protection Act. They had broad public support, and they probably would have broad public support today, but a handful of judges decided to gut them, uh, the, the specifically the in, anti-indecency provision of the Communications Decency Act. We've always outlawed obscenity in this country. As recently as a dozen years ago, actually, a federal judge sentenced a pornographer to four years, in, almost four years in federal prison, just for obscenity. He hadn't committed any other crime. And this, I think, is an important way to begin restoring standards on the right. Because what you will hear from the more libertarian-leaning folks is they will say, Well, Michael, who's going to decide? One man's drag queen story hour is another man's church on Sunday. And I just think, uh, you know, thank you, Justice Potter, that uh, one really does know it when one sees it. And I I guess there can be margin calls, but for the most part, there are not. And if we are going to abandon the courage to to actually assert a political vision, if we are going to deny our faculties of reason and moral judgment, then I suppose we don't really deserve self-government and the conservative movement won't be able to conserve anything. I mean, so far it hasn't even managed to conserve the women's bathroom.
1: And you've just hit on a topic um, very near and dear to the heart of those folks that follow the rebellion, and that is the definition of conservative conservatism. And that is, you're a conservationist, you're working to conserve something, you're conserving the time-tested ideas of God.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, I, you know, I loved, uh, uh, Roger Scruton had a great line on this, the late uh, conservative philosopher. He was asked, what is it? to be a conservative? You know, one of these really broad questions. And he said, well, you know, I just sort of think that conservatives like to conserve things. (laughs) This really irritated all of the ideological sort of libertarians and and other other groups on the right. But that is what we want to do. And we, we don't want to conserve just anything. We want to conserve the very best from our tradition and way of life, which implies a moral order. It implies that some things are better than other things. It implies a vision of the good, which every single state in all of human history has had, implicitly or explicitly. And conservatives have have really abandoned all of that. I think in in no small part because we have adopted the language that the left used in the 1960s, which was purely instrumental, by the way. When when the left in the 60s, and even more recently, has prattled on about academic freedom, they're not talking about the freedom of, of... intellectuals to pursue their own studies, which would be a, I think, a coherent version of intellectual freedom, academic freedom. They're not talking about the freedom of conservatives to teach in universities. They're certainly not talking about that. They're talking about the freedom of leftist radicals to indoctrinate students. I mean, this was was actually the topic of William F. Buckley Jr.'s first book, widely credited with launching the post-war conservative movement, called God and Man at Yale. The subtitle is the superstitions of quote unquote academic freedom. He called it a hoax. Same thing goes for free speech. You had a free speech movement at Berkeley in the 1960s, but they didn't really want free speech. I mean, Berkeley is one of the most hostile campuses to free speech in the country today. What the left used the free speech movement for was to knock down traditional standards. And no sooner had they done that than they began to erect new speech codes in their place. So I think it's very important for us to recognize that we are conserving something that is a substantive vision that implies a moral order. And if, if we are now at the point where California Republicans are actually demonstrating this, where we are going to embrace transgenderism as a conservative idea, then I think we're wholly lost. If we cannot discern between a man and a woman, and if we cannot permit uh, people to state plain truths before their very eyes, then we won't, we won't conserve anything at all.
1: Okay, Michael, we're gonna draw this particular episode of your guest appearance with us to a close, but I'd like you to share with the
0: listeners how they can go purchase your book. So you can go get the book right now. Uh, I think it may even be out of stock on Amazon. You can go check that out. We've, We've been really lucky. We hit a number one national bestseller and uh, the New York Times entirely snubbed us, which I take as a badge of honor. So you can get Speechless on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. You can get it direct from the publisher, Regnery. And we're really, really I'm grateful to everyone who's, who's bought the book. I was afraid that a book with words would not sell as well as my first one. But I'm pleased that people are <laughs> taking the, uh, the, some of the more provocative arguments seriously. And I hope that that can help steer the conservatives back in a more sensible direction.
1: Okay. Well, I want to thank you for joining us in this first episode. And for all the listeners right now, remember that in times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and we will be back tomorrow with Michael Knowles as our guest.